This is the Passive Real Estate Podcast, the premier podcast for passive real estate investors. Matt Jones interviews experienced passive investors who share their industry secrets and active investors who show you different ways to invest passively. Welcome back. I'm Matt Jones. And today on the Passive Real Estate Podcast, I welcome Dennis Shapiro. Welcome, Dennis. It's great to have you on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. It's an honor to be here. Excellent. Uh, what would you like the audience to know about yourself? That That's a good question. Uh, so I guess high level, you know, I've been investing since I was 14 years old. My brother gave me a copy of Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Um, went down several rabbit holes in my life, everything from investing in, st uh, investing in stocks, where I wanted to be the next Warren Buffett, uh, to uh, working for the government. And then I kind of stumbled on to passive investing about a decade ago, and then went through a series of uh, progressions. I want to say it was everything from, hey, what is this? What is a syndication? What does it mean to be, be a passive investor? To um, you know everything to then raising money myself and then operating my own deals and I guess it was just a, a step in in a direction at a time and basically sometimes it's better to do take take one step at a time. Yep, very good. And then how did you get started with real estate investing itself? Uh, I did the probably the stupidest thing you can possibly do. I got my first paycheck, went to. Uh, my older brother, who was the one who gave me a copy of Rich Dad, Poor Dad, I think I was 22 at the time. Uh, and by paycheck first, like salaried paycheck, I was just out of graduate school. And uh, I was like, hey, I, I think I need tax write-offs. You know, do you have a property you could sell me? And he literally looked at his portfolio and was like, all right, this is my biggest headache. Take it. Uh, he didn't phrase it that way, of course, <laughs> but you never tell someone, well, what do you want to sell uh, type of question and uh i learned a lot on that property and uh so in hindsight is is a great learning experience not a great investment though <laughs> fair enough and uh currently do you invest passively or actively or a bit of both a uh, bit of both so we were heavily into the passive side and then i would say in the last two and a half years we've transitioned where we will only invest in deals that we have operational insight on okay uh what kind of deals do you invest in so our our bread and butter is definitely affordable housing. So we do affordable housing syndications. So these deals are very similar to what you'll see in the typical value add, but there's the affordable housing component to it, which creates a barrier of entry, which you don't really see too much in uh, multifamily. So affordable housing is really our niche. Uh, we also have an income fund that we have for investors. That's a 506C income fund. Um, and then we will do uh, par strategic partnerships with people in our network, uh, everything from mobile home parks to self-storages where we're not the lead operators, but we are co-operators in that deal. Uh, and we, so we, we do a wide range of things, but our specialties are definitely affordable housing. Why affordable housing? You know what? Sometimes it's how your partners, it's the expertise of the partners that give you an opportunity when you're starting out. Uh, so it was something that, you know, my main partner, Anthony Khan, we met four or five years ago. He was getting into the affordable housing space. I followed along on a few deals that he was doing. And then he finally, he's like, hey, I'm I'm about to be offered this this deal from a seller that I've worked with. Are you interested in, in, in starting? This is day one type of project. And I said, hell yeah, let's let's do it. And then uh two, three years later, I've I've loved, I've learned to love all the 
problems that comes along with affordable housing, which I know will scare 99% of other operators. So I, I love it more today than when I first got started in it. And uh, what would make a passive investor investor interested in investing in affordable housing? So first off, like when you're looking at supply and demand, and just to keep it really simple, there's just not enough affordable housing for it. They could probably build for, they could probably overbuild affordable housing for the next decade and still not, uh, still not, you know, catch a catch up to where the, uh, where the demand is. Uh, so the first off is that just from a business side, you're in a really great place. Um, from an acquisition side, you usually have to be certified by the state financing authority. Um, that creates a huge barrier of entry where th these deals don't go to just like a broker. Some do, but not a lot of sellers, they don't want to deal with a broker. They don't want to deal with the situation where they are getting best and final offer. And then the state doesn't approve that buyer. So when we already have that approval from the state, that gives us an unfair advantage on acquiring some of these properties. Uh, so those are a couple of things we really like about it. We like about it that the supply and demand is just in our favor for the next decade or so. Uh, they set up well for long-term buy and holds. We're long-term uh, operators. So for example, Fannie and Freddie actually have a mandate on affordable housing. So we usually get a better mortgage product with them. Uh, we don't do any variable loans, anything like that. Uh, so we, we we just like all those little things that make it special. We We, we like it. And what's the approximate range of returns that investors can expect? I mean, of course, nothing's guaranteed, but uh, but what they can expect at least. We model out exactly what you would see in a value add portfolio. I've learned from my passive investing days. There's a sweet spot to me that's thirteen to fifteen percent. Uh, I have an amazing track record of zero percent on deals that uh, that modeled over twenty percent. Uh, <laughs> and so so I've learned, you know, through one deal after. Uh, one deal after another that there's just too many reasons why you should never project a 20% return, uh, especially on just a regular value add deal versus, you know, you know, development deals are different, but if we're sticking with value add, you know, I, there, there's a reason why you should be in the mid teens type of returns. And we, we model out exactly the same thing. Uh, you know, like a, a, a mid single digit cash on cash early on. Um, we, we do model out like a 10 year hold. So IRRs, you know, it's almost impossible to get a 20% IR with a long time, 10 year hold, but we do aggressively will try to refi if it makes sense. Uh, it doesn't really make sense these days, but that's our model. We'll refi out, hold out. And, uh, we, we, we're not looking to flip it in three years and do all of that type of things. Okay. And how are you finding your deals or are you just uh, buying the worst deals from your brother still? Oh no, those times have that was a, a couple of decades ago. <laughs> um what we do basically is we do work with developers. So just give you guys like a 30-second high spiel on, on affordable housing. What ends up happening is a lot of them are funded through what's called light tech credits, and it's actually considered one of the best government programs. Uh, I know that's almost like an oxymoron, but it is actually, it's credited with a lot of development. And what happens is if you have a raw piece of land, the cost to build that raw piece of land into a, an affordable housing community versus a class A property is surprisingly similar because you have to do the foundation. You have to do the plumbing, the electric and the roofs and the windows. What's really different is that final, those finishing touches, right? You expect granite countertops in a class A building. 
uh, versus you're going to do laminate and affordable housing. So most of the time, most of the costs are already kind of sunk in. So no developer would would go out and be like, well, out of the goodness of my heart, I'm just going to build affordable, right? So what they do is they use these LIHTC credits from the government to make it to the point where it really does make sense for them to build affordable if they're willing to deal with the bureaucracies of it. And so what happens is the government is also not, not, you know, stupid, they're not going to say, well, here's money. And then a year later, you change the business model. So they lock in these developers into two 15 year periods, the first 15 year periods, there's tons of credits, tons of incentives to hold on to our property. That second 15 year period, basically all those credits and incentives expire, but the restrictions are in place. And that's when we try to go in and we try to buy in that second period. So a lot of times you could have ongoing relationships with a couple of developers, like we bought our property from I think they're top five in the country, but they're they're one of the largest developers in Pennsylvania, but we have a relationship with them. So they don't mind selling to us directly in a situation like that, as long as we can meet them, uh, you know, with the price. So we, we source it usually from these developers that build brand new, whether or not, I think our property was built brand new in, uh, I think it was 1998. Uh, so it's a fairly great condition property. If you drive into it, it will look like a class B property in North Carolina. You won't be able to tell it's affordable housing, but it looks great. It's a beautiful property. And that's kind of the way we, we try to buy. Nice. And then uh, if a passive investor is interested in investing in a syndication, what are the, some of the key things that they would need to know? So let's zoom out. And this is not like an affordable housing. This is just, you know, me putting on my passive investor hat. Uh, from doing all the deals. So there's a few things, you know, we definitely look at. One thing I did mention is those return profiles. Um, the funny part is really return profiles are the last thing you should be looking at a deal. And too many times newer passive investors, that is exactly what they go in and zero in on. And then they, if, they, if it's high enough, they'll try to convince themselves to make the deal work. Um, after, you know, after you've done 10 to 15 deals, you learn that it really is the last thing you look at, it's all about the operator, the relationship you have with that operator, that trust factor you have with that operator, the referrals you can have with that operator. One thing I've done as a passive investor that, you know, some operators hate this, some operators don't. I always ask to follow along on the performance of one or two deals, active deals. Um, you know, when you get these deals and they're like, oh, hurry up, we're 50% subscribed. And I think that puts this urgency on investing, but investing is really a long-term game. It is not about the short term. So what you want to do is, hey, reach out to that operator and say, hey, I really like what you're doing. I like the market you're in. I like this type of things. You know, can I follow along on one or two deals? Put me on one of your investor. Like if I was an investor in deal B, I want to, can I see the, the email threads? Can I see the quarterly updates? Can I see how you handle a pause and distribution? Like, I want to see that. And I would say eight out of 10, seven out of 10 operators will just say no. And then the ones that do, those are the ones that you could create meaningful relationships with. And you don't need many operators. I think a lot of people, especially when I started out, I think I tried to get on the call with as many pass as many operators as possible. And then you get inundated. The truth is, you want to get to the point where you build up your network of other investors to the point where you know which investors, which operators you want to go after. Operators shouldn't really be going after you. Like, so if you get in a LinkedIn request, like, hey, I got this incredible deal. You should really check out. Like, like, no, you shouldn't. You know, <laughs> you want you want to spend your time 
really fostering relationships, quality relationships. I have a one quarter rule, one quarter, a one call, a quarter rule. I have it with most of my investors. I have it with some of my operators. And basically, I want to be getting on a phone call with you once a quarter. I want to be discussing what you're seeing, what I'm seeing, what how my deals are going, how your deals are going. If you do that with five investors, you will have a really good sense of which operators you should be working with because you're going to filter out the 80-20 and then focus again on the 80-20 after that. I forgot. It's like a new term out there now. It's like the 20, the 20, the 80, the, the 20% of the, of the 80. It, it's, it's like you're down to like your four, 4% of the best operators at that point. So basically if you're starting out, don't focus on the returns, focus on building quality relationships with five people, whether or not they're operators. Most of the time, I would recommend them not to be the operators. I recommend them to be actual fellow investors in these deals and then get on quarterly calls and then also ask to follow along on the operator. If you could do all of that within a year or two, you will your knowledge base on passive investments will skyrocket. And then I think you would be much more well-equipped to invest in these types of syndications. Excellent. And uh, how can an investor determine whether or not you and your team are a good match for what they're looking for? It's all about those quarterly calls. Uh, that's, you know, I've learned, I, I remember one situation in my passive career, I had this operator, big name operator, right? We've had, we had a, that intro call and it was a good call. It, it really was a really good call. I was like, okay, there's some potential here. He sends me over a deal and I spent like an hour, hour and a half just diving into the deal and I gave him a list of like 10 questions and I thought they were really high quality questions. Boom. Got ghosted right after that. <laughs> uh, basically he didn't want to deal with an investor like that. And the point is I took my time and then I still relook at that email to make sure to remind myself that when an investor asks me questions, I take my time to give him a thorough answer because he took his time to write it out. And I remember maybe it went to spam. I, I don't know what the situation is, you know, always give the benefit of doubt regardless, but at the same time, you know, ask good thorough questions and see what kind of time commitment they're willing to give you. You know, a big operator, they're not gonna really give you too much time. And, you know, there's some big operators that they have their reputation. You could kind of like, okay, they're, they're good. But if you're starting out with a relationship and that person doesn't really have that much of a track record, you know, and they're not willing to get on that quarterly call with you, you know, I think that speaks volumes. And then at that point, you just have to kind of make a decision where, you know, that's not worth, if that, if they, if they're telling you, you're not worth their time investment, then what, it, like, why would you ever invest with them? Mm -hmm. And then I know you also wrote a book as well, The Alternative Investment Almanac. So I'm curious, who should read that and what would they benefit from it? Yeah, um, I wrote that book not knowing how many people are going to read it. And I, I've i been shocked at how many. I'm not, I don't go out there and say I'm an Amazon bestseller. I don't know what the criteria is. One thing in this tricks of getting the bestseller status where you take a niche of a niche of a niche. Uh, but I sold, you know, I think I sold something like 12, 1300 copies. And I was thrilled when I sold my second copy okay. because I was like, Hey, I could get, my mom will buy one. Uh, so the second one is, is someone actually went out and bought it. And, um, so I'm always thankful about people buying it. Um, and one thing I would say, so this book was really written where I had my passive investor hat on. What I wanted to do was there were some great books out there, but they were, extremely voluminous on one specific topic. 
right? So there were some great books, like, you know, you could read Brian Burke's book on uh, on uh, underwriting, the, the hands-off guide to investing, but it's all about that one topic. And that's great. But I put myself in the mind of someone is making, someone is maybe newly accredited, but let's say at least a sophisticated investor. They don't really know anything about these various asset classes. They could pick up my book and it goes into mobile home parks. It goes into self-storages. It goes into even life insurance policies. Uh, anything that you could kind of invest in passively, what it does is it gives a high level overview of the actual asset class. Then it goes into a Q&A, which is my favorite part in the book. Uh, I got people from my network. Uh, I got some great, you know, ATM investors and some great mobile home park operators. I think the the apartment building guys between the two of them uh, probably have 10,000 units and, and 30, 40, 50 years of experience. And I gave them the exact same questions. You know, what 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 is what is the one thing you would tell an investor? What do you see this asset class in five years? Uh, and it's the same list of 10 questions posed to a life insurance investor, to a uh, to a mobile home park investor, to a self-storage investor. And what it does is it allows someone who's never seen this space get a high-level overview, get Q&As, and then they could, honestly, the contact information for all those people are in there. Reach out, and those are some of the like the best people that, I, that are in my network, and they will gladly return a phone call, email, whatever it is. And then if you do like a specific topic, let's say mobile home parks or uh, you know apartment buildings, then now you could go into the rabbit hole for that specific asset class. Or you could read the chapter on ATM funds and go, you know what? It's just, you know, and I go over pros and cons of every single space. I also, I tried to bring in, I tried to research the Ponzi schemes that were in each single space. So I gave food for thought. And if you read the chapter and you go, okay, this is something I want to entertain myself. You got two high quality people to reach out to. And then on top of that, then now you got the rabbit hole. You could go in to, uh, you know, find a mobile home park podcast or read the book on investing in mobile home park. You know, now you have a more clear, concise path. So that's kind of what I wrote the book for is to be this, um, you know, this almanac of different asset classes that pop up during these conversations that you have with other investors. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense because there's a lot of different uh, ways of investing your money and to, you, you know, you don't necessarily know what all they, they are and have this uh, high level overview so people can kind of peruse and see the different options, see which one calls out to them the most, and then some direction there of where they can do to take the next steps to learn more. So that's uh, that's a great resource. I, so I, I'm definitely interested in reading that myself as well. Uh, because of some of these things like an ATM, I haven't really taken a deep look at myself yet. So, uh, but back to real estate, uh, what is a problem you've encountered with real estate investment and how is it handled? Uh, so when we first bought our property, affordable housing, uh, we we brought in the third party property management company that we ended up, um, that was operating my partner's property in the same town. We thought it was going to be a no-brainer, easy fix. Within six months, we actually had to fire them for both properties. Um, and we decided to, there's usually like an adage where, you know, you need a thousand units of your own property management company to kind of make sense. There's it, It's usually common practice. When we were having those problems, I told my partners, I was like, we just, we need to figure it out, you know we are always going to have another issue with a third party. There's just not enough accountability. Like we stand for accountability. That's what we, you know, we, we're usually our biggest investors in our projects. So we're all about accountability and we're, we weren't getting it with our third party property management. So with only 72 units, we decided, Hey, 
we're going to figure out how to make this economical, how we're going to make this, even if we break even on the property management company, we're going to make, we're going to fix this problem. And uh, it was like a six month process. It was extremely laborious, but you know, a year later now I look back at it and it's just, it's amazing. Night and day, we're able to control the expenses of each company much better. We're not beholden to anybody responding to us. It was, and I've learned in the process a lot because I've had to take on certain elements on the property management side that I don't know if I want to in five to 10 years, but I'm really happy that I got into the weeds now where I feel like we're going to hire out. And, you know, we have our first manager. She's been amazing and she was a direct hire of mine. So I invest a lot of time and effort in her. And in five years, I see her being a regional manager with us. And, you know, we might only, we're not a high volume shop. We might only be at three, four hundred units by then, but I could see her being a regional manager and then for us to hire someone underneath that. Uh, so we we believe in a small team, but we were really fortunate to be able to vertically integrate with property management so early on. Awesome. Yeah, property management is really crucial. You could buy, you could find the best deal in the world, get the best price for it, the best terms, but if it's not operated correctly, it can be run into the ground very, very quickly, as you saw with the bad management that you had to fire. Uh, so you, your company, SIH Capital Group, uh, what is your role on the team? I'm founding member. So it's right now we went from, uh, it was actually just me. I founded it during COVID. Mm -hmm. uh, and now we've merged recently with uh, my main partner from the affordable housing side. So that's Anthony Khan. So there's just two of us. And then we have we have uh, founded our own property management company. We call that Affordable Housing Redefined. And uh, yeah, that's basically it. We also have, with a different partnership, we have a short-term rental community um, where we manage our own short-term rental properties. But that's a little bit of a, a side note. That's not our main business. Gotcha. All right. Are you ready for a speed round? Let's do it. What's your favorite part about passive real estate investing? Uh, leveraging other people's time, money, and experience. What do you know now about passive real estate investing that you wish you knew when you first got started? Roll before you walk type of thing. Uh, education is much, everybody says passive investing is super, super easy. And it is after a certain, after a certain learning curve. I just wish that I would have, uh, would have took things more slowly in the start. And then at the same time, speed things up once I felt comfortable enough. And in addition to your book, is there any other book that you would recommend to other investors? You know, I, I would do uh, Brian Burke's book, The Hands-Off Guide to Investing. I think it's a great book on underwriting. I would also throw it out there, besides a book, educational content, uh, a, lot of, a lot of it, passive investors shy away from learning underwriting. Uh, Michael Blanc's like syndicated deal analysis, I strongly recommend. It, it there's like a course it's like 100 bucks 150 bucks it will change the way you look at deals passively uh so strongly recommend between brian burke's book and uh michael blanc's like course on underwriting i think that's a great like starting course starting uh package for any new passive investor okay great uh how can our listeners get in contact with you if they want to learn more about what you have going on yeah, so my website is sihcapitalgroup.com. Uh, you could go in, click contact us. Uh, my book is The Alternative Investment Almanac, Expert Insights on Building Personal Wealth in Non-Traditional Ways. That can be found on Amazon. Uh, so between getting my book and just reaching out to me on my on my website, um, 
I love my relationships and contacts and I don't have an investor relations person. So you're, you're going to be dealing with me and I look forward to talking to any one of your listeners. Awesome. Is there anything else you want to mention that we haven't covered yet? Um, no, first, thank you for having me on. Really appreciate uh, the, uh, the connection and uh, yeah, look forward to being on again. Awesome. Well, thank you, Dennis, and have a great rest of your day. You too. Subscribe to this podcast to stay updated on new episodes. Leave a review to let us know that you enjoy the content. There are tons of ways to invest in real estate that you can explore by reading Matt Jones's book called Book About Real Estate. It summarizes many top real estate books all in one. Find it on Amazon, Audible, iTunes, Google Play, or barnesandnoble.com. If you want to learn more about passive real estate investing, go to hawkwingcapital.com.